That would be great. Thank you, Greg, for doing this uh, to the computer. Did it, did it do it? Um, it doesn't say recording in progress, though. I didn't get that little thing, so maybe do it again or I'm not. Oh, it says it's recording. It's web, but it's saying the right. Um, no. Oh, here, let me. Uh, yeah, get that going. It's odd. Okay. Well, it looks like it's. Is it? Did you get a recording in progress note? No. Hmm. Try that again. Let's see again. Maybe stop the recording and do it again. Okay. Do it one more. Try again. Let's just see. Record to the computer. Well, hopefully it's recording. Okay. Well, greetings. Let's do the before uh, lecture chant. An unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas, having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept. I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Hold on a second, Greg says. No sound? Yeah. Hmm. Try this again. Can you? We're working on choosing the microphone. Yes, we hear you now. That's not what we. Hold on. Okay, now one more time. They can't hear us now. I hear you. Oh dear. How is this now? Can you hear? Can you see? Am I alive? Yes. And we'll hope that it's recording. It's good to see you all. And there's a few uh, stalwart people here roasting <laughs> here at the church. It's nice to have the people in person and all of you. Well, I don't know if you heard the chant. We did the before lecture chant. I um, well, I don't think we need to do it again. It's been done, so it's been done. Um, well, so today I'm going to be talking to you on the sutra entitled The Simile of the Snake. And I, Norman sent out a list of like four sutras uh, from the Pali Canon for the four of us who have been doing these to choose. And I cho chose this one mainly because I knew that Thich Nhat Hanh had a commentary on it because I didn't know any of the sutras that he had chosen. So I thought, well, what the heck? I know there's a commentary, so that'll help me out. And it turns out it's quite a wonderful commentary. <clears throat> it's, um, I think you can find it in two places, um, in one of, Norm of Thich Nhat Hanh's books called Cultivating the Mind of Love, which is a compendium of various things, or in this little book called Thundering Silence, 
sutra on knowing the better way to catch a snake. And th that's what um, Thich Nhat Hanh calls this sutra, the simile of the snake. He calls it knowing the better way to catch a snake. And this book is only that sutra and, and Thich Nhat Hanh's commentary. And I highly recommend it. So um, this is a wonderful sutra. There's two, two stories, two kind of similes, the simile of the snake, and then we'll get to later uh, the one of the raft. Um, and then there's a lot of other things in it too, but I'm not gonna be able to talk on everything um, in this one. And when I quote, I'm gonna be quoting from Thich Nhat Hanh's translation, not the translation that, that Norman or that we put, was put up, I think, on the website, because that was done by Bhikkhu Nanamoli and Bhikkhu uh, Bodhi, because I, I think Thich Nhat Hanh's is a little more accessible in some ways, at least to me. Uh-oh, uh I messed this up. Is that good? Okay. So <clears throat> to start, this sutra is about, uh, um, it's about actually how dangerous the teachings of the Buddha can be. How dangerous, because it's so easy to misunderstand them and get stuck into thinking it's this way, and you might actually be thinking totally the opposite of what's going on. So, um, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about this here. He says, the sutra on knowing the better way to catch a snake does not aim at expounding the harm of sense pleasures or explaining concepts of no self, nirvana, or tathagata, although the sutra does mention these concepts. The main purpose of the sutra is to demonstrate the necessity of breaking the bonds of attachment. The Buddha shows us why it is a hindrance to be attached to anything, including his own teachings. Um, now the sutra does refer to all those other major concepts and talks about them some, and Thich Nhat Hanh in his commentary um, sort of connects the dots or the threads so if you want to go deeper into those concepts, Thich Nhat Hanh will take you there. He cites other places where um, the Buddha talked about those things. So it's quite wonderful. I'm going to not be able to go into all of that because I think this sutra could have actually several weeks on it to explore all the uh, parameters. I'm going to stick to the basics. Well. Well, Norman, in his introduction uh, to the sutra in the translation that you have, you know, he had a little summary at the beginning. He says, we need to see that the teaching, the teaching of Buddha, is not a viewpoint, not something to be grasped and become attached to and identified with. Quite the opposite. In fact, we need to understand the teaching as the disentanglement of views, the letting go of any sense at all of me and mine. 
and we'll be going into that some for sure. So um, this is about how we tend to grasp. We grasp onto things to help us feel comfortable. We grasp onto a belief and hold onto it. Or we grasp onto feelings, emotions, all kinds of things. And we also attach to a particular teaching. And it's about how that brings forth suffering. So <clears throat> I'm going to try to bring forth the teachings in this sutra telling you about the stories, but also bringing just some personal stories to try to illustrate how I've related to it. And I'm hoping that as I talk, you'll, rather than waiting for me to ask you a question at the end before discussion groups, that you will, um, that you'll jot down some notes, either physically with a pencil and paper or in your mind, mentally. Just take some notes. Is there something that comes up for you, that strikes you in this sutra? Um, or does it remind you of some other sutra or other teaching or some event in your life? And it is those things that I'd like you to bring into your discussions when you meet in small groups, rather than me asking you a specific question. So pay attention to what arises for you. So uh, one last quote from Thich Nhat Hanh to get us off on the right track. He says, breaking the bonds of attachment is the most skillful and intelligent way to practice. We study the Dharma to practice it, not to accumulate knowledge. Because one of the uh, things in the sutra is it, it speaks about how sometimes people um, maybe study teachings and stuff just to gather knowledge or show how smart they are or this or that. But what's important is how we come to understand and practice it in the nitty gritty of our daily lives. So let me tell you the, the basic opening story frame. The monk, the bhikshu Aritha, um, had been, he was a, a student of the Buddha, one of his monks, and he was going around saying that um, the Buddha taught that there's no problem with sense, indulging in sense pleasures. Please indulge in sense pleasures. The Buddha teaches it. He says, yes, do it. And um, that was sort of horrifying to other monks because they thought maybe that wasn't quite what the Buddha was teaching. But, and they tried to talk to Aretha about it and said, are you sure, are you sure? And Aretha says, yes, yes, the Buddha teaches that it's okay to indulge in sense pleasures. And well, they could not talk him out of it. He was just really firm in his attachment to this belief. So finally, they went to the Buddha. And the Buddha says, okay, well, tell Aretha to come here. Bring him over. So they get him and, and bring him. And he... He, the Buddha asked him, Are you, is this what you're saying that I teach, that um, it's okay to be attached to sense pleasures and to indulge in them as much as you want? He says, yes, yes, that's my understanding of your teaching. Yes, it is. And well, so then the Buddha has to sort of set him straight and in a sort of a reprimanding way, he does set him straight. Um, 
So the, what's important, one of the things that's important is that Aretha was so attached to his view, he was so sure of himself that he didn't seek out or really listen to when the advanced monks came to him to check his understanding. And the Buddha urges in the sutra, monks, it is important to understand my teachings thoroughly before you teach them or put them into practice. If you have not understood the meaning of any teaching I give, please ask me or one of the elder brothers in the Dharma or one of the others who is excellent in the practice about it. Well, that made me think of Sangha, how important it is. I mean, we have this Dharma seminar and we learn and study the teachings and we talk about them and we try to, we ask questions and we see if our understanding's right. And we're curious about how to apply these teachings to our lives. And that's the sense what the Buddha wants people to do. You know, my teaching today might be a little bit off. I'm hoping I kind of under, that I do understand the parts that I'm able to bring forward to you, but it's possible I might be a little off. And maybe Norman's gonna have to tell me later, well, Marianne, that was pretty good, but um, let me teach you this way. Or maybe you'll ask a question later because it won't seem quite right on what I say. And that's okay. That's how we learn. There's sort of humility in that. I, I think that perhaps Aretha was not able to connect with that humility of, of maybe not understanding. He needed to be right. I've kind of been in that position many times where I, want to be right. I am right. As a matter of fact, my older brother Marianne uh, used to say to me, Marianne, why do you always have to be right? And in fact, maybe I wasn't right, but I, well, there were reasons. It was because I was younger and I was trying to stand up for myself, but it wasn't a helpful pattern. So we have to look at these things. Aretha was hooked into his view and he missed um, is important aspects of the teaching and practice. So Buddha continues saying, if you do not practice the Dharma correctly, you may come to understand it as the opposite of what was intended. But if you practice intelligently, you will understand both the letter and the spirit of the teachings and will be able to explain them correctly. Do not practice just to show off or argue with others. Practice to attain liberation. And if you do, you will have little pain or exhaustion. Well, I like that phrase, um, to practice um, it, the letter. You will come to understand both the letter and the spirit of the teachings. Because, you know, it's easy to get, say, oh, I got this teaching. This is what it says. Like in chapter X and verse W, you know, this is it. And I'm going to hold on to that. But maybe there are circumstances in life where teachings um, need to be looked at more deeply and where you have to find the underlying spirit of what's being communicated. So that's very important, the letter and the spirit, understanding both of the teachings. 
Um, <clears throat> we practice ongoingly um, to get deeper into the spirit of the teachings. With, we practice with our Sangha, our teacher, contemplating our lives to understand and practice the deeper. And when I was writing this sentence, then what arose to me was the title of um, Suzuki Roshi's, one of his books, Not Always So. We're trying to get in touch with the not always so aspect of the teachings. And the point is really to be liberated from being stuck in our views so we experience all of life directly, immediately. So this is where the simile of the snake comes in. Um, the Buddha was applying it to um, the possibility of misunderstanding his teachings as so serious that he likens it to catching a poisonous snake. So it's like, I like to get this image, you know, imagine a big snake. Imagine it's the teachings, you're trying to grasp them, but you're also trying to feel good and inside and you're trying to get away from your pain or whatever's going on and you really don't want to suffer and you just grab wildly at the teacher teachings. You're not careful about it. You just grab it and maybe latch on to one section of the snake and then the snake's flying around you and bashing you and hurting you. That's what the that's what Buddha says is going to happen if you just impulsively impulsively grasp at them. He says the better way to study teachings and your life is, I think, I'm paraphrasing of course, but to take a breath, get a stick that's forked, it's got, um, you know, forked stick, and you go and to catch the snake, to understand the teachings, you, you're paying attention, you're mindful of it, and you put that forked stick right behind the head of the of the snake. So it cannot possibly, you know, bite you or empoison you. Its, its tail might flap around, but you, you cannot be harmed by it. And you can turn toward the teachings with curiosity and with a mind of really wishing to explore more deeply without trying to just real quick get away from your suffering. You're willing to go deeper. And so that's the the simile of the snake. Now the sutra uses um, the example of self sense pleasures to illustrate the danger of misunderstanding the teachings. Uh, it points up how we get caught in opposites, either indulging completely or possibly guarding against any kind of pleasure or feeling or connection to anything, any joy in our lives. So from Thich Nhat Hanh's commentary, he says, many people think that to undergo a spiritual discipline is to practice asceticism and austerities. But the practice of the Dharma does, does not exclude the enjoyment of the fresh air, which I personally wish we had a little more of in here, um, <laughs> the setting sun, a glass of cool water, an appreciation of family and friends. Enjoying things in moderation doesn't bring us suffering or tie us with the bonds of attachment. 
Once we recognize that all of these things are impermanent, we have no problem enjoying them. In fact, the real peace and joy are only possible when we see clearly into the nature of impermanence. So Aritha was misunderstanding this and was saying, oh yeah, you can have sense pleasures. He didn't get that it was just that moment, just appreciating, like I'm looking out over there at the beautiful green of the plant out through the door. It's lovely. It's impermanent. The next moment I'm sitting looking, appreciating all of you for the moment. But it's impermanent. That's okay. Impermanence is a gift to us. So we get into trouble when we grasp at a pleasure or a relationship and we can't let go. Or when we grasp at anything and we can't let go, we forget the impermanent, impermanent nature of everything. So as I was thinking about this part and the part of the sutra where, you know, the Buddha's been talking about sense pleasures and, and then reading Thich Nhat Hanh's commentary, I was thinking, yeah, so it's okay. We can experience the beauty of that sun coming through and, and oh yes, isn't it nice? We can feel good every moment. Except then I thought, well, what about grief? What happens when you love and then there's a loss? Maybe it's a thing we like or a flavor we like, or but more I was thinking about people we love. How do we bring grief into this? How does grief fit into this idea of, yes, you just be with the present moment and it'll be, you'll feel good? Well, I think that would be a perversion of Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings to really say that, because I think grief is included. And I want to um, focus on it. Um, I think it is a, another misunderstanding of the teaching to imagine we could always be experiencing enjoyment, and if we experience sadness or grief, that something's wrong with us. I don't know about you, but I have had those feelings. Maybe you have, many times. So I found, I was reading in this lovely book that I think Sue Moon turned me on to originally. It's Dewdrops on a Lotus Leaf, Zen Poems of Ryokan. He's such a feeling dude, you know? He's wonderful. And so there's this poem I'll read to you. Sometimes I sit quietly, listening to the sound of falling leaves, Peaceful indeed is the life of, the, of a monk, cut off from all worldly matters. Then why do I shed tears? I'm so aware that it's all unreal. One by one, the things of this world pass on. But why do I still grieve? So. I think grief is important. And so as I read that poem, then a memory that I've probably spoken about other times, but I think it's appropriate here, um, of, of grief and uh, came to me. It was um, a bit, this was a big grief. Our griefs can be large or small. This was a big one. It was when my brother died and I was 27. Um, and he, he died suddenly, unexpectedly, and kind of tragically. And I, I just descended into grief, like 
terrible grief. I didn't, you know, I, and I was around, I was at an internship in music therapy at the time, and the other folks I was with, they were about my same age, early, mid-twenties. It was hard for them to be with me in my grief, or, and they kept trying to get me to, like, forget about it, or not forget about it, but don't tell them about it. You know, after they, they gave me a week, you know, but then uh, that was it. But my grief, it just kept on, and I had never experienced this before, and I really descended into a kind of despair and depression where I felt I wasn't sure if I really wanted to live, if I wanted to be involved in life anymore. So I swang way over there. Uh, fortunately for me, I wasn't exactly grasping at the snake to try to get some, I, something to make me stop feeling. I was way too far gone in grief to do that. But I did meet people, uh, my supervisor and later therapists and a group therapist who patiently, patiently helped me to really be present with my grief, with the grief. Like I think Stephen Levine would talk about it as the pain, with pain and to really be there with it. And over about the course of a year, gradually, I gradually began to feel more like maybe I could live. I wasn't sure. I really wasn't sure. And then one day, this was so clear, one day I, I just thought, yes, I will love again. I will allow the bird song to touch me. I will allow the joy of this ice cream to touch me. I will let myself love people again. I know I'm going to lose them all. I know they're going to, you know, people will die, the ice cream will be eaten, the bird will be gone, but it's okay. I'd rather, I choose love, I choose life. And that was so profound, that moment. Um, of choosing that, and I, I've come back to that a number of times, it's helped me. Um, so I said yes. So I think it's being with grief or pain is part of this process. It's not separate. It's not like it would be misunderstanding the teaching to not feel, to tr think you should be beyond that in your understanding. You know, that would be a perversion of the teaching, I believe. Or, or a way you'd be trying to grasp the snake so you didn't feel and you were just flinging it around. In my work in therapy in that case, it was like I had the stick and put it behind the, the head of the, of the snake and the therapists and friends helped me explore it, helped me turn toward it. And I think that's what we, we do in our lives. That's what I think the Buddha's talking about. So I want to broaden this to a, a little more to other experiences. I know the Buddha was talking about um, his teachings and this understanding of the teachings. But it seems to me that we can use this image of the snake um, and grasping it in just about anything. And th this came to me actually on Monday when we were in the precepts class and we'd been talking about the precept of not to harm ang harbor anger but to forgive. 
and I had this thinking of, about impulsive anger. You know, when I'm impulsively angry, sometimes I lash out. It's been known to happen. I say things I'm sorry about. I write emails I'm really sorry about. Um, <laughs> you know, lashing out, it's because I'm hurt inside. But it's like I'm trying to grasp the snake. I'm going to lash out with my anger to try to feel better. But that snake's, you know what happens when you write those kind of emails or say things out of anger? You get hurt. That snake is just lashing around. Um, what works better is when we feel angry or hurt. Maybe we're hurt deeply by something and we feel really angry. Step back. Take a breath. Go to your cushion. Sit down. Put the two prongs of the stick behind the snake's head and turn toward the anger and then turn toward the hurt and what's going on and keep breathing. And you do, I like to do this at my cushion because it, I'm doing it held in the presence of the Buddha in the presence of all that is. It really grounds me. It's not flapping around out there in my mind. It focuses me. It's like putting those prongs of the stick right behind the head of the snake. So I had to do that recently also, because uh, I had a situation with somebody where in the exchange I felt very hurt. And this went on over some time. And I wanted to shoot off an email. Um, I didn't shoot it off right away because I've learned better. I've messed up so many times. And I, I just didn't do anything for a few days, but just be with it and breathe with it. And then uh, we were studying in precepts class. Precepts are wonderful. Practicing the precepts really helps. <laughs> so in the precepts class, we were talking about generosity. And one of the uh, interpretations of the, or translations of generosity is not to spare the Dharma assets. And I was, I was actually falling asleep when I thought of this. Not to spare the Dharma assets. That means to allow love to flow forth. Allow love to encircle. Feel, remember your interconnection with this other person, with everybody. So I just started to visualize love with this person I was upset with. And then something shifted. And the next day I was able to write an email, and I, then I always have my wife read it, because even still, I might insert a little something or other in there. So she read it, and a few more changes, and I was able to send it, and then the person responded, said, yes, let's talk, Marianne. So we talked, and well, what she said didn't totally be what I had wished to hear. That wasn't important. It was that we understood each other, and we feel, I feel resolved, and I feel reconnected with this friend. So that's another way. I say you can really apply this um, simile of the snake in many situations in your life. It's a, for me, it's a very helpful image. Well, I've got to talk about the next major simile in the in the um, sutra, which is the simile of the raft. And this one comes up in other sutras, of course. Uh, the Buddha speaks of it a lot of times. But here it is, and this time I'm going to read it to you from Thich Nhat Hanh's translation. So 
Here the Buddha is saying, Bhikshus, I have told you many times the importance of knowing when it is time to let go of a raft and not hold on to it unnecessarily. When a mountain stream overflows and becomes a torrent of flood water carrying debris, a man or woman who wants to get across might think, what is the safest way to cross this flood water? Assessing the situation, she may decide to gather branches and grasses, construct a raft, and use it to cross to the other side. But after arriving on the other side, she thinks, oh, I spent so much time and energy building this raft. It's a prized possession to grasp, right? And I will carry it with me as I continue my journey. If she puts it on her shoulders or head and carries it with her on land, Bhikshus, do you think that would be intelligent? How could she have acted more wisely? She could have thought, this raft helped me get across the water safely. Now I will leave it at the water's edge for someone else to use in the same way. Wouldn't that be a more intelligent thing to do? I have given this teaching on the raft many times to remind you how necessary it is to let go of all the true teachings, not to mention teachings that are not true. So the Buddha is again saying, don't grasp onto my teachings, don't attach to them so much that you, you live only in the letter of them and not the heart, and that when there's a time that the situation, things are different and you need to release it, you can't release it. No, you must be so present in the moment that you see, oh, this teaching, I can leave it now for someone else, I'll go further. Um, so this is applying to how we, um, like in the simile of the snake, it's impulsive grasping to get out of maybe feeling badly. And with this teaching, the raft, it's how we get caught in attaching to teachings, to Buddha's teachings, to ideas, and to many other things and ideas in our lives. Maybe you can think of some things that you attach to, that you hold to, <laughs> that maybe are not so helpful for you. Because I think, sure, this teaching is about, don't, even the Buddhist teaching, at some point you have to give up. You, you can't rigidly attach to anything. But it's also about little things in our lives. And so I have an example um, from when I was five. You know, I don't know if you did this, but I think many children do this. They, they will, something will happen with their parents or somebody, and they'll make up a rule for themselves. And this rule will guide them for years. And usually it's made on not great information. So for me, I, I really clearly remember a time when I was five. I had been following my brother over in the schoolyard, and we were chasing some girls who were in my older brother's age and grade, and I was this time allowed to tag along, which made me feel fabulous. And I got all dirty, I was so dirty, and we chased these girls, and I just felt so good about chasing, and we weren't really mean to them, we just were chasing them um, and getting dirty. So I went home, I told my mom about it, 
And my sweet mom, she was horrified <laughs> that her sweet little five-year-old girl with you know, curly hair and everything um, was all dirty and was glorying in chasing and, and almost being mean to these kids. And so she kind of reprimanded me. And I suppose the reprimand wasn't bad, except she neglected to first connect with what that all meant to me inside. Well, I don't blame mom for that. You know, she was doing the best she could. She was trying to, you know, teach her little girl. But I decided in that moment, I'm not going to share any true feelings with my parents. And I did. I remember that moment and those almost words. I won't do this because I didn't want to not be seen, not be understood. Um, and I, I held on to that for a really long time, and I regret it now. But I held that rule. Um, maybe it kept me safe growing up. I'm not sure. Maybe it did in my family. I was a younger kid. But later, eventually, when I was in my 20s, I realized I don't have the depth of relationship with my parents that I wish I had. And from now on, I'm going to tell them things. I'm going to initiate conversation about feelings, even if it's difficult. So that's my story. I'm sure you all might have stories of rules or things you've held on to, but at a certain point, you've just got to let them go. Well, I'm going to do a little gear shift here and get just touch on the teachings of no self, which come up in the sutra. And I have to say, I don't have the best understanding of this. And it, in the sutra, the Buddha goes into it a lot. And then Thich Nhat Hanh connects with other things, too. Um, but I'll try to share with you what I can. Um, I have some glimpses about this. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh says, the teaching of no self, no separate self, is one of the teachings of Buddhism most likely to be understood, mis misunderstood. So it's one we can, you know, kind of mess up on. The Buddha refers to this teaching in the Sutra on knowing the better way to catch a snake as an example of how many people have misunderstood his teachings, including Brahmins. There is a simple and general way to explain no self, which is that there is no single entity whose identity is changeless. All things are constantly changing. Nothing endures forever or contains a changeless element called the self. And I talked about that a little bit earlier when I was talking about impermanence. So I want to go back to that quote of Norman's that I think I read in the beginning. He says, we need to see that the teaching is not a viewpoint, not something to be grasped and become attached to and identified with. Quite the opposite. We need to understand the teaching as the disentanglement of views the letting go of any sense at all of me and mine. So that relates directly to how we understand the concept of no separate self. You know, we're all deeply interconnected with everything. Well, that uh, Norman's thing uh, lines there where he says, let go of any sense of me and mine uh, brought to mind a poem 
an, another poem, different writer, um, you can see how th this material brings up associations. I hope it will for you as well, because associations can take us deeper. So that, that made me think of this poem that's uh, been helpful to me for a long time in my life. It's a poem by uh, Rainer Maria Rilke in his uh, book, his Book of Hours. Now, before I read you the poem, I, I feel like I have to give you a warning. He uses the word God. And as a matter of fact, he's talking to God. The poems are written kind of to God because that's what a book of hours kind of is. But to, please don't get hung up on that because I think what we're gonna hear in the poem relates to this sense of a separate self, of me, mine, grasping, and what is the true nature of everything. So here's the poem. Do not be troubled, God, though they say mine of all things that permit it patiently. They are like wind that lightly strokes the boughs and says, my tree. They hardly see how all things glow that their hands seize upon, so that they cannot touch even the utmost fringe and not be singed. They will say, mine, as one will sometimes call the prince his friend in speech with villagers, this prince being very great and far away. They call strange walls mine, knowing not at all who is the master of the house indeed. They still say mine and claim possession, though each thing as they approach withdraws and closes. A silly charlatan, perhaps, thus poses as owner of the lightning and the sun. And so they say, my wife, my life, my child, my dog, well, well knowing all that they have styled their own. Life, wife, child, dog remain shapes foreign and unknown, that blindly groping they must stumble on. This truth be sure only the great discern, who long for eyes. The others will not learn that in the beggary of their wandering, they cannot claim a bond with anything, but driven from possessions they have prized, not by their own belongings recognized, they can own wives no more than they own flowers whose life is alien and apart from ours. God, do not lose your equilibrium. Even he who loves you and discerns your face in darkness, when he trembles like a light you breathe upon, he cannot own you quite. And if at night one holds you closely pressed, locked in his prayers, so you cannot stray, you are the guest who comes but not to stay. God, who can hold you to yourself alone belonging? By no owner's hand disturbed, you are like unripened wine that unperturbed grows ever sweeter and is all its own. I think many of those lines just touch me because I can sense the graspiness I feel. Oh, mine, my this, my that. And then he says, um, 
We hardly see how all things glow that our hands seize upon. You know, everything's glowing in its own being, but when we try to grasp, we miss it. Um, rather than just being present with our no separate self, just being with in that moment and as everything changes. Um, and at the end, uh, well, let me, it's just you can't quite hold anything, yet if we come toward it and just let it come toward us, sort of like the Zen master, the Korean Zen master Sun, Sun Song says, only don't know. That's what this poem reminds me of. Just only don't know. When I'm tempted to grasp, to say, mine, mine, I'm a separate self, my ideas, my understanding of the Dharma, my, you know, open. Only don't know. Open the hands of thought. I think really that's a lot of what this is about. Be curious in every moment. Scrutinize teachings. Be open to teachings. Be open to change. Be open to impermanence. Be open to death and loss and renewal. Just each moment, each moment, each moment. Um, so to close, I want to just read this. It's the end of Norman's summary. He says, through devotion to the particular forms of our practice, you know, just coming back and sitting down, practicing the precepts, dialogue, Buddha to Buddha, um, we come to see that everything is our practice. This is roaming free on the other shore. So that's my talk. I hope it made some sort of sense to you or that you could pull something out of it, out of this wonderful sutra. Please, uh, now we're going to go into groups. It's, let's go have 40, I mean, 20 minutes in groups until 20 till. And shall we have, what shall we do? Groups of, uh, maybe groups of three. That would work. And so five minutes each, or four, do whatever works. Three or four, five minutes each person, and then five minutes together to make the 20 minutes. And then we'll come back and uh, talk together and see what we can help each other know. Uh, that was, I, I, you, I hope you listen throughout yeah, and you have things to share in your group. I don't have a question. Yes. Okay. <laughs>